Hey, we're in week two of our brand new series called Church Words. This series is all about those words that you really only hear about in churches. Today, Pastor Tom unpacks the meaning of the word grace. If you would like to take a next step, get involved, or learn more, check out our website. That's www.wordoflifeag.org. Let's check out this week's message. Now, how are we doing? Everyone doing okay? Glad you made it to church. Um, everyone loving summer? So my allergies have been on overdrive um, this week, and so if I sound like, you know, something, you know, terminal is happening, at this point I don't even know, but, and then I made the mistake yesterday of going outside in the sun, and let me tell you something, us British, we don't tan. We go red for a couple of days, and then our whole body is basically just giving dandruff back to the world, and... So that's what Megan has to look forward to. But um, I said this last week, uh, and here, summer season, I completely understand. There's vacations, there's family days out, there's weekends away, there's, um, you know, things to do this and things vying for attention, there's camps and all sorts of other things going on. So if you've missed church, don't miss church. So we have um, the whole service is online, it's on YouTube, typically on Sunday afternoons. So not long after service finishes, the whole service is online and available on YouTube for you to go. So if you're not able to be here present on a Sunday morning, that's awesome. We totally understand, we get it, but don't miss out. Be a part of church, find yourself, uh, you know, an hour and a half, midweek, Sunday evening, whatever's good for you, and be a part of church service. Be a part of worship. Don't just, uh, you know, don't don't even just jump in on the message. Be a part of worship. Hear what's going on. Be encouraged by the stories that we share on the screens mid-service. Be uplifted by hopefully the word and be challenged by what God's doing. So if you miss church, don't miss church. And I don't mind saying I'm deeply proud of that slogan and I will be using it all summer long. Can I get an amen up in the house? All righty. Well, last week we started week one of a new series that we called Church Words. And the idea is that there are words that are used uh, in and around church or in a faith environment or a faith context. Um, But typically outside of a church or outside of a faith environment, you wouldn't hear these words come up. And so we wanted to take some time and sort of think through some of the words that are shared and some of the things that we say in and around church. And last week we started the series by looking at the word holy or holiness. And one of the things that we came up with is the definition of holy is that it's God's unique perfection, which is both separate and creates separation from what is common or evil. And that God's invitation to holiness includes the promise to clean us up. And so hopefully what we're going to share about today and what we're going to cover today uh, is going to complement what happened last week, possibly even reinforce uh, what we shared last week as we get into today's word, which is going to be the word grace. We're going to look at the word grace uh, and what this means and what the Bible can teach us about that and what it means for us as believers and as we're trying to figure out what a life of faith looks like, the word grace uh, is going to be the word we dig into. And if you think about it, and as I was looking at it this week, the most common ways the word grace is used in culture or the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, social, the society we're in today is that we would say grace to mean the prayer before dinner. Or we would say grace meaning uh, a type of elegance or social graces, or we would think of the song Amazing Grace. The typical definition that you'll get if you look it up in a Bible dictionary or if you've been around church, you may have heard this before, but the word grace, the easy translation is the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God. Expanding on that a little bit, this is lifted from some Bible dictionaries I was in this week. 
Grace is the acceptance of and goodness towards those who cannot earn or do not deserve such gain. It is both grace that heals our relationship with God and makes an eternity with Him possible, and grace gives us the ability to maintain that relationship. Now, that, of course, is a mouthful, so the definition that I wrote down, and it was really helpful for me as I was thinking about this, is that grace is God's undeserved and unearned goodness, favor, empowerment, and blessing. God's undeserved and unearned goodness, favor, empowerment, and blessing. And even if you think about grace as prayer before dinner, and this comes from the idea that as you pray for things, it's the idea of giving thanks for things. And uh, the idea of a prayer before dinner is the idea of giving thanks to God for things that we don't deserve. We don't deserve His provision, but He has generously given it to us. And so we thank God for it. It's the grace before dinner. It's acknowledging God's grace and His provision in our lives. And even as we think about social graces or elegance or something along those lines, someone being gracious, the idea is that somebody is, uh, is conducting their life in a way that is evoking grace from society around us. It's this idea of somebody is treating somebody favorably because they carry themselves with elegance. This idea of grace, it pulls back to this undeserved merit, this undeserved favor, this undeserved goodness. This undeserved empowerment, and of course, the undeserved healing of the relationship between God and humanity. And the first thing I want to just hit on with everybody is that grace is mercy's big brother. And it's important that we catch this because we think by mercy is grace's big brother. And what I mean by that is that mercy uh, is withholding a punishment that is deserved. Mercy is you should get X punishment for something, but in my mercy, I'm going to withhold that punishment to you. Grace goes a step further and says, not only am I going to withhold a punishment and give you a second chance, I'm also going to help you make the most of that second chance. And when we think about God and we think about grace and we think about grace defining so much of his character and his interaction with humanity, it is not just that I'm going to withhold the punishment that we may deserve. But it is also that I'm going to give you a second chance, and I'm going to give you everything you need to make the most of that second chance. And God's undeserved goodness is so truly incredible, it should and could affect our whole lives and overflow and extend to those around us. That what God is doing in us is in turn blessing those around us. Now, I've never had the opportunity to go to Israel. I'm sure some of you here have. I know my mother-in-law has had a chance to go to Israel. But one of the main uh, spots that people want to hit when they go to Israel is to go to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, uh, it's on the border between Jordan and the Red Sea, and it's the lowest point on earth. It's approximately uh, 1,300 feet below sea level. There's 10 times more salt in the Dead Sea than there is in ordinary seawater, and it's dense in nutrients and minerals and other things that can give health qualities to people. And there are a lot of people that would buy uh, skincare products made out of the mud or the water from the Dead Sea. Because it has qualities that can bring healing and can, you know, be generally good for you and have health benefits. There are things like mud baths that you have sort of made with, you know, stuff from around the Dead Sea that are supposed to be great for you and have huge health benefits. But even though it's dense in nutrients, and even though there's qualities that should bring health and could bring you know, a benefit to us physically, nothing can grow in or around the Dead Sea. If you go there, there's no fish, there's no plant life. They found some bacteria, so apparently the germs might be okay. But the Dead Sea should be a highly life-giving place, but it's not. 
And the reason it's not is there's no outflow. It's not a running body of water. Water flows in from the River Jordan, and then it stays there. And my friends, this cannot be a picture of the grace of God in our lives. That it all comes in. And what should be life-giving qualities, what should be the potential to bring help and healing and refreshing to others, just stays on the inside without life growing because there's no outflow of what we're doing. And Jesus, he spent his earthly ministry demonstrating, embodying, and teaching grace. And Jesus, typically, when he was talking about a subject, he didn't give a a clear-cut definition of, okay, now sit down, I'm going to tell you something, and here it is, point by point, that you need to go through. That isn't how Jesus would teach. But the four books of the Bible that we have, the Gospels that record the life of Jesus, they show that he had many different modes of communication as he was teaching. Jesus would tell stories. He would teach crowds. He had conversations with the disciples. He debated with other Jewish teachers, and he lived as an example of what he was teaching. And we have examples of all of that contained in the Gospels. And all of this together, all the different ways that Jesus would teach, all the different ways he would communicate, it all builds together our understanding and appreciation for the kingdom of God and what it means to live as God's people because of the grace that has made it all possible. And one of the main ways that Jesus would teach is from parables. And parables, it's possibly the most frequent way that Jesus' teaching is recorded in the Gospels. And these stories that Jesus would tell, not not one of them on its own perfectly sums up all all that Jesus has come to teach. There is not one parable that you or I could point to and say, now that summarizes the whole thing. They all kind of build together so that we can build an understanding of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what it means to live by his grace, and what it means to live for the kingdom of God. It all builds together. And so I want to hit on a few parables in the time we have together today. And the first one I'm going to go to is in Matthew 13. You can go there in your Bible, or the words are going to be on the screen. I'm going to start in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Found a treasure. I'm going to hide it again, sell everything I own so I can get that treasure. Looking for pearls, find one that's of great value, going to sell everything so I can get what truly matters. The first point I want to bring to you today, and if you're taking notes, I highly suggest you do. This may be the first thing you want to write down, is that grace reprioritizes everything. Grace reprioritizes everything. So the both examples that Jesus used in here, they both found something of incredible value, meant so much to them that they were willing to sell everything. Once you get a glimpse of the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the favor of God, despite the fact that you're aware you definitely don't deserve it, that supersedes everything else in life. A healed relationship with God, a secure eternity, is more important than anything else. And just think for a moment, what selling everything, which is the example that Jesus used, just think about what's involved in selling everything, the absolute upheaval that would happen in your life. But I'm assuming that this is done with joy. I mean, it means getting something better, being a part of the kingdom of God. 
that it's worth turning our life upside down and reprioritizing everything. And I don't want this discovery of a great treasure that's worth reprioritizing our whole lives to become like the Dead Sea and for the goodness of it and the blessing of it and the favor of it to just end with me. Instead, when I encounter the grace of God, when I encounter the goodness of God, I want it to affect my family. I want it to affect my coworkers. I want it to affect everybody that I come in contact with. Because God's grace blessing my life should mean my life blessing others. God's grace blessing my life should mean my life blessing others. Now, this won't come as a surprise to anybody, but I am not God. Why is Megan nodding enthusiastically? But I am not God, but I can reflect him, and I can reflect his goodness. God's people, we are not God. He's not asking us to be God. We shouldn't expect to be God, but we can reflect his goodness. We can let the work that he's done in our lives and in our hearts overflow into all different areas of our lives, overflow into our relationships, overflow into the people that are around us, because God's grace blessing my life should mean my life blessing others. I want to hit on a few other parables today, keeping in mind that no one parable tells the full story, but rather they all build together to tell the the broader story that Jesus is communicating. And the first one I want to hit on with you as we go through this is in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, keep the treasure and the pearl in mind the whole time by reprioritizing because of grace. Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came to him, talking about Peter coming to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now, it was expected that you would forgive somebody three times. And so Peter here, when he comes and says seven times, he's really saying, look, Lord, I'm ready to go above and beyond what's expected of me. But Jesus then doubles down even more and says, not even seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And this is, of course, a way of saying that forgiveness is unlimited. Jesus clearly isn't saying that you forgive somebody 490 times, but the 491st time, you've run out of chances, game over, it's done, you're over with. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven... This is Jesus trying to help Peter understand the nature of forgiveness. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please, Be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with great pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Now, the story could end here. It'd be a great story. Wonderful picture of God's grace. Someone came in, was held to an account. They weren't perfect. They messed up. They had mistakes. They owed him a debt. And it's time to repay begs for forgiveness, true repentant heart. Lord, please forgive me. Perfect picture of God's grace. But this isn't the end of the story. Verse 28, but when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant repayment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. 
but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. He demanded justice. He demanded what was right. And the truth is, if these were two different stories, it probably wouldn't cause the outrage. It probably wouldn't cause us to feel strongly about it. But these stories are put together. And in the light of this man being relieved of a much bigger debt, it causes frustration. It causes, no, this isn't how it should be. It causes an outrage inside of us. And remember, this all started with Peter saying, how many times should I forgive? And this is Jesus' way of letting Peter, and consequently you and I know, don't forget how much you have been forgiven. When it's time for you to extend forgiveness and grace to others. Verse 31, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the king sent the man to to prison to be tortured until he paid the entire debt. Next thing I'd ask you to write down is that grace gives us something to replicate. Grace gives us something to replicate. The undeserved forgiveness of God that he has generously and lavishly sown to us. And in light of all of that, How much more should I be ready to forgive those who owe me a debt? And the scripture here that we just read, it's specifically talking about forgiveness. That's what Peter initiated the conversation with Jesus about. But it's in keeping with the rest of the Bible and the heart of this passage that there are other good things and there are other ways of grace has been shown to us, no matter how much we deserve it, that we can also think about and it can change our thinking and it can cause us to reprioritize as we think about our human relationships. Say so elsewhere we're told to imitate Christ and that he is our role model. And so the question is, is that how else has God treated us? Yes, he's forgiven us and we need to reflect that to others. But God has also been patient with us. How can I be impatient with others? God's been generous to us. How can I be stingy to others? God doesn't bring guilt and shame on people. How could I possibly bring guilt and shame on the people around me? God is honest and truthful to us. Love covers a multitude of sins. Grace gives us something to replicate. An invitation to imitate Christ, to go and do likewise. And here's a promise. You and I will have no shortage of opportunities to put this into practice. Matthew 20. Moving on to another parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing, so he hired them telling them he would pay them whatever was right. At the end of the day, so they went to work in the vineyard at noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one has hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. Now, let's have a moment of honesty. How many of you would assume the same thing? But they too were paid a day's wage. 
When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Grace overrides critical comparisons. Grace overrides critical comparisons. We've seen here from the story that driven by jealousy, they felt hard done by, they felt it wasn't fair, they were critical of people that only worked one hour. I noticed as I was reading it this week for the first time that they only complained that they didn't get enough because they found out what others got paid. Grace helps us to not be consumed by how worthy or unworthy someone else is. It helps us to not be critical or negative towards others, to badmouth people. Helps us to not tear people down or to be obsessed with comparing ourselves with other people's level of spirituality. It helps us to not be angry that God is blessing others. Instead, it refocuses us and reminds us that grace is God's undeserved and unearned goodness, favor, empowerment, and blessing, and I am a primary beneficiary. Now, I wanted to welcome Pastor Jeremiah, Stacy back. They're going to help me show this. I think these guys are worth a mighty round of applause. Now, these guys are both competitive by nature, which is going to make this awesome. So the competition is who can jump and touch the ceiling? Now, I want you guys to help me judge, okay? So are you all good with this, okay? We want to, hopefully we can get a winner figured out, okay? So are you ready? You got springy calves today, PJ? Yeah? Okay, you feeling good? Those heels are going to help you out a treat. Okay, this is good. So on the count of three, I want you to jump like you mean it, okay? So whatever you need to do, hope you've been warming up. One. Okay, calm down. All right. One. Two, three. All right, okay, hold on, hold on. That was close to call. All right, we'll do it again. Now, remember, I need you guys to judge online. I need you to help me judge this. One, two, three. Okay, all right, who won? Who won? Stacy won? Who won? Stacy, Jeremiah, Stacy? Now, okay, if you think Stacy, make some noise. If you think Pastor Jeremiah, make some noise. I think Stacy got it. But folks, let me tell you, you're wrong. None of them won. Because the competition was who could touch the ceiling, not who could jump highest. Come on, let's hear it for these guys. Thank you so much. The competition was not and never was who can jump highest. But if we're obsessed with comparing ourselves against others, and we talked about this a little bit last week, if we're obsessed with comparing ourselves to others, we'll be so satisfied where in our own estimation, we're jumping higher than someone else, and we'll forget that that was never the standard that God laid out. What God said is that there's a perfection that you can never ever reach, but in my grace, I will send my son. I will heal my relationship with you. I will make it possible for you to make the most of this second, third, fourth, fifth, 18th chance you've got. 
Going to move on to another parable. Luke 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. We talked a bit about this last week, about who you ate with uh, sort of made a big deal in your public life. Verse 3, so Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who were righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels even when one sinner repents. Grace finds joy in others finding grace. Grace finds joy in others finding grace. What brings joy to God is someone encountering and responding to grace. And I want to have in my own life unspeakable joy when someone repents and enjoys the healed relationship they can have with God. I want to accept God's invitation to rejoice with me as one person comes home and knows that there is a loving father who wants to heal his relationship with them. And Word of Life as a church has a long history, long before Megan and I came here, about caring deeply about people who aren't following God. And we're committed to doing whatever we can to help people start and continue this journey, simply because this is the best thing that has ever happened to us, and God has changed our hearts to care about others. And the best thing that we could ever do is help someone embrace the grace of God and see them find the joy, the hope, the freedom, and the peace that we have. This is the best thing. Finding a relationship with Jesus is the best thing that has ever happened to me. And I know there's a bunch of people here that would agree with that. Amen. Consequently, why wouldn't I want to tell people about it? Why would I let my life be rich in grace, but no outflow like the Dead Sea? Just let this relationship and this grace that God has poured on me again and again, just let it stay in my life and in my house and keep it private and keep it to myself. I want to live a life where I want to share that with others and see others find the peace and hope and breakthrough that I have found as I've come to faith in Jesus. So we've read a number of parables, and from there I just want to point out three things to reprioritize. The first thing from the parable of the servant and the king, give the grace and forgiveness we wanted to receive. Give the grace and forgiveness we wanted to receive. The parable of the landowner and the day workers. Look for ways to lift up, not tear down. From the lost sheep and the coin, that encouragement to rejoice with me is to celebrate people experiencing the grace of God. 
I'd far rather live that way where I'm wanting to give the grace and forgiveness that I wanted to receive. That sounds far better to me than holding on to anger or wanting to take revenge or letting bitterness take root in my heart. Rather than withholding patience and kindness and all the goodness that God has shown to me, I don't want to forget that I've benefited from far much more grace than I could ever give to someone else. I want to look for ways to lift people up and not tear them down. I don't want to criticize and judge harshly. I don't want negativity to determine how I feel about people. I want to find ways we can lift people up and not be lost in comparisons and try and drag them down so I can feel better about my inability to touch the ceiling. I want to find ways to lift people up. I want to celebrate people experiencing the grace of God. I don't want to be indifferent or even negative about people finding God even though they definitely don't deserve it. Even those kinds of people, people that disagree with me on a whole bunch of stuff, people that don't deserve the love of God, I want to rejoice with Him that they have encountered the love of the Father. I don't want to be concerned about whether it's fair or right or appropriate or whether they're cleaned up enough. I want to celebrate with the Father that someone came home. The, um, the Bible college that Megan and I went to, the, uh, the first week of the semesters, they would have what they call Presbytery Week, and it was a special week. There wasn't typical classes. They would have guest speakers, and they would have special services and things like that. And the first week I was there, so I'm fresh fish on campus. Um, I hadn't met Megan yet. Who knows how I held my life together. I couldn't even tie my shoes at that point. But I'm on campus, and we're in this presbytery meeting, and there's around 900 students that were in this room, and we're having a special service. And the presenter, the, the person that was teaching this presbytery class, this gathering, to make a point, he said, who here is comfortable singing in front of a large room like this, a large crowd like this? So a young lady who was also in her first week, she put up her hand, so we called upon her, and she came up. And he just said, sing Amazing Grace. And she sang it beautifully. I mean, it was like an X Factor audition, like one of the good ones. It was spectacular. And she went all Christina Aguilera, like it was like warbling and like, ah, you know. I like Bob Dylan, I'm not into that stuff, but she like warbled, she showcased her whole range she made sure everyone could hear how beautiful a voice that she had. She showcased all her talent. And then the instructor said, okay, well, I need someone else too. And the next person to put their hand up was a Hawaiian guy called Lakahi. And he was in his third year, so he'd been around for a little bit and he'd learned a few things. So he called on him and he came up and he's like, okay, can you sing Amazing Grace? And he starts in, I'm not a good singer, but I'll try. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Come on, everybody, join in with me. And then everyone started singing together. That saved a wretch like me. I once. But now I see. In that moment I realized, that was beautiful by the way, 
this girl lost an opportunity to lead worship with 900,000 people because the grace of God stopped with her. Lakahi, he learned a few things in his three years at college, and it was more important to take the opportunity to let others experience the grace of God. Whether people observe your, our talents, our awesomeness, our Christina Aguilera-isms, is frivolous compared to the opportunity to lead people into experiencing the grace of God for themselves. Grace. If one person claps, we all have to. Come on, it's the law. Grace reprioritizes everything. Just like those people who found a treasure and found the pearl. Grace gives us something to replicate. Grace overrides critical comparisons. And grace finds joy in others finding grace. I've got a couple of questions for you, and hopefully you have a chance to write these down, and maybe this week take 10, 15 minutes and pray through these and think about how it applies to you and how it may be uh, challenging to you in some ways or encouraging to you. But the first thing I'd say is this, is how does the grace of God completely reprioritize your life? Now, maybe you're here, and the grace of God has already caused massive changes and upheaval in your life, or maybe this is a brand new thought for you. But still, I want to lay that challenge at your feet of how does the grace of God completely reprioritize your life? And the second question, how does the grace of God at work in my life positively affect those around me? How does the grace of God at work in my life positively affect those around me? My coworkers, are they feeling the benefit of God working in my heart? my family members, the people I encounter on a day-to-day basis, are they benefiting, are they blessed because of what God is doing in my heart and in my life? How does the grace of God at work in my life positively affect those around me? I wanna pull everyone's attention to what I would say is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. And there's a story about why this is my favorite verse, so maybe I'll share it another time. My favorite verse in the whole Bible is Romans 5, verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. How do we know God loves us? How has God demonstrated his love for us? By sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Not after I cleaned myself up. Not after I got my act together not after I begged him for forgiveness, not after I started to reprioritize my life. While I was in the middle of my mess, while I was in the middle of my brokenness, while I was in the middle of believing the lies of the world would lead me to happiness and fulfillment and joy and peace and all the rest of it, in the middle of that, Christ died for us so that we could know a healed and whole relationship with him. My friends, every single one of us has a list of regrets, mistakes, stupid things we've done. The Bible calls it sin. And that list separates us from God. Your list might look different from my list. 
Your list might be a lot worse than my list, or your list might be a lot better than my list. But we have a list. And that separation from God can only be fixed by God himself. Humanity could not uphold our end of the bargain. So God became humanity to uphold it for us so that we could have a healed and whole relationship with him. How do I know God loves me? Because while I was still an absolute disaster of a human being, Christ died for me. Show me grace, gave me a second chance, gave me hope for a future, gave me peace, helped clean me up like we talked about last week. And you may be here today and I don't know your life story, I don't know the circumstances that have got you to the point where you came to a church on Sunday morning. You may be online and somehow you stumbled across our church service and you're here and you're listening to this message or maybe something from today, whether it was some lyrics from the worship songs that we were singing or maybe one of the Bible verses that I was reading out earlier, but something grabbed you. And you're at that point now where you're saying, you know what, I actually believe that this whole Jesus thing is for real. You may not even be able to explain it, but you're at a point now where you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You believe that he died on a cross to pay the price for your sins, my sins. And you're at the point of believing that, you know what, but I know that I know that three days later he rose from the grave, conquering the power of sin and death once and for all. You're at that point where you believe the message of Jesus. But in a moment of honesty, you'd say, even though I believe it, I'm not following him. And if this is you today, if you're at that point of saying, you know what, I believe the message of Jesus, but I'm not following him. I would love to pray for you today to take a first step of faith and start this incredible adventure of following Jesus. For me, 18 years ago, I made the decision to follow Jesus. In that 18 years, I've had ups, I've had downs, but I've never once regretted my decision to follow Jesus. And I would love to give you the chance to take that first step today. So if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, everyone in here, this just gives some privacy and discretion to those around you so that everyone can focus on what really matters right now. But if you'd be honest and brave enough today to say, you know what, Tom, I'm not following God. I'm not living a life of faith, but I wanna start. I'd love to pray for you. And if that's you today, if you could just put your hand up, not so we can embarrass you, thank you, thank you. We don't wanna do anything that's gonna make you uncomfortable. I'd just love to know who we're praying for. Amen, thank you, thank you. Amen, online there's a button you can push that says, I raise my hand. Amen, anybody else here? Amen, thank you. I don't wanna drag this out, but I don't wanna close this window if this is the moment, if this is the time where you say, you know what, I believe and I'm ready to start living this life of faith. I'm ready to start. I'd love to pray. Anybody else here before we close? Amen. Come on, Word of Life Church. Can we please celebrate? Come on. Heaven rejoices over one. We're joining with Him and the angels right now as we celebrate. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to pray a prayer together. And if you meet people around the church, you'll meet dozens, if not hundreds of people that will tell you about their life of faith started by praying a prayer like this. So let's pray it full of faith, believing that a prayer like this will help get you going on a life following Jesus. Come on, everybody, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. 
Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you, those brave people that put your hand up a moment ago, either in person or online, is three pieces of advice I'd give you, three things to do. The first thing is today, tell somebody you made that decision. Whether it's somebody here at the church, a family member, somebody, but let somebody know, hey, I've decided to figure out what this life of faith looks like. I've decided to put one foot in front of the other and figure out what following Jesus means. The next thing is tomorrow, read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible at the info center outside, we have Bibles we would love to give you. You can get the Bible app for free online. Dig into the Bible tomorrow and then next week, be right back here in church. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, guys, let's welcome back Stacy and Jeremiah. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about our church, take a next step, or get involved by going to our website. That's www.wordoflifeag.org. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to join the conversation happening online. See you next week.